Ladies and gentlemen, we present Harvard of Grace. Let's have a rim. Now, we're going to ask you for a little quiet as we offer this wonderful mayor. She has shown the greatest decorum all the time she's been here. This is an unusual situation for any thoroughbred to come into this ring with this wonderful but appreciative crowd. And we couldn't be more appreciative than we are of Mr. Porter for allowing us to offer this wonderful mayor. There's not much more I can say that wasn't so well presented on that tailor-made video. Let me just say this. There's an old... William Shakespeare saying that some are born great, some have greatness thrust upon them, and some achieve greatness. And Harvard of Grace achieved greatness. In her race record, the reason that she was horse of the year was that she won just about everything that they put in front of her, and then she took on the boys and beat some of the best boys in training. She beat flat out to honor and serve Uncle Mo, stay thirsty, and pretty much any filly that they put on the racetrack with her. She is truly a beautiful lady with a wonderful race record, a first-class pedigree, and here she is as a broodmare prospect suitable for mating. All right. How do you get out of the auction zone? Turn it up a little bit, Jerry. How do you get out of the mammoth? How do you get out of the mammoth? How do you get out of the mammoth? What down? How do you get out of the mammoth? Five million on her. Look at five million to get her started. How do you get out of the mammoth? How do you get out of the mammoth? Two million. How do you get out of the One million dollars. How do you get out of the mammoth? Five hundred. Now million. That five hundred. Turn it up, Jerry. Five hundred. Now million. How do you get out of the mammoth? Now million. Now fifty. You get a million five hundred. You get out of the mammoth? Now two. Yep. Two million five. Now two. Now five. You get out of the mammoth? Two million. Yep. Five hundred. Three million on her. Two million five. Three million. Now three. You get out of the mammoth? Three. You get three. Now three. Now three, now five, now three, five. Three fives right there. Now four, you would get out of the mammoth. Now four, you would get out of the mammoth. Three five, now four, four, now five, now four, five. Four million five hundred on her. You would get out of five, now five, now five. You would get out of five million. Four million fives here. Five million on her. At five, right? You would get out of the mammoth. Five million, five million, five million, even money. Get four five, now five. At four five, now five. Everybody get five million. You would get out of the mammoth. Five million to buy. Everybody get five million. Now five million, five hundred. Five million five two five. At five million two five million five. At five million five. You would get out of the mammoth. Five now seven. You would get five million seven. You would get six million on her. At six million. Dollar, you would get out of the mammoth to get six. You would get out of the mammoth to get five, seven, and now six, now six. It's six, now six. You would get out of the mammoth to get six. You would get out of six, now two, now five. It's six, five, now five. Everybody get five. You would get out of the mammoth to get five. Everybody six, five on her right. You would get out of the mammoth to get five. It's six, five, six, five. It's six, five, now five. You would get out of the mammoth to get five. Now seven, six, seven, six, seven, seven million on her. It's seven, now seven. You would get out of the mammoth to get seven million dollars. You would get out of the mammoth to get seven to buy her now seven on her. It's seven, now seven on her. You would get out of the mammoth to get seven. How can you come this far and not get her? Seven, two. It's seven million two hundred. Five and seven, now two. You would get out of the mammoth to get two. You would get two. You would get seven million two hundred thousand on her. It's seven now two. You would get two now two. You would get out of the mammoth to get the mammoth to get two. You would get seven two to get seven million seven two. It's seven million now two. You would get now two. You would get two now two. You would get out of the mammoth to get the mammoth to get two and where to the mammoth to get seven million two hundred thousand on her. It's seven million two. I'll take one, Tom, if you want to do that. Seven millions right over here. Seven million one hundred thousand on her. Seven million and one. That's seven million and one. You would get out. How can you come this far and not get her, Terrence? I tell you what, I don't want you to pull the trigger yet because there are so many people on the telephone right now. And just look at this beautiful mare in the ring. Whatever the price is, she is truly deserving of whatever you're prepared to pay for her. Odd one, two, seven, two, seven, two, seven, two, seven, two, seven, two. How do you get out of the mammoth to get seven? You get out of two, you get out of two, three. You get out of the mammoth to get seven, three, seven, three, five. You get out of seven, five. Yes, seven, five. Honey, you get out of she is a great, great mare. Seven, five. You get out of now seven. You get out of eight million dollars. That's the way. At eight hundred, I need you to get out of the mammoth to get eight. You get out of eight million dollars. You get out of eight to get eight. You get out of eight hundred. I hate all done. You get out of eight to get eight. Eight. You get out of eight now two. That eight million two hundred. Honey, you get out of no, no. You're running behind. I got eight million right there. Eight million. No, I got eight million right there. Eight million two hundred. You're out. Eight million two hundred. 
hundred, you would get out of the middle of the two hundred. Now five, now five, eight million five, you would get five out of five, you would get out of five, 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 you would get five, five, you would get five, you would get out of the ball done. Don't miss her, we'd get five, 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 at five, five, now seven, you would get eight million seven hundred, at eight million five, you would get eight, seven, you would get out of eight, five, seven, you would get nine, one, nine, 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 you would get out of the nine hundred, at nine, right, you would get out of the nine, now nine, you would get nine, nine, you would get out of nine, all done, you would get nine, you would get nine, you would get out of the nine, now nine, nine, now two, at nine, now two, I'm at nine million, you would get out of the nine, two hundred, you would get nine million, two hundred. At nine two, you would get out of the line. You would get two. You would get five. You would get five. Now five. At five. Now five. You would get out of the line. What a mare! What a mare! What an opportunity! I would get out of the line. Get five. Would get five. Would get five. At five on her right. You would get out of the line. Get five. You would get out of the line. Get five. Would get out of the line. Get nine five. And now ten million on her. At nine five. And now ten. You would get out of the line. Ten million. Round her off. Would get nine five. You would. Bruce is winning at nine five. Tom, you're running second. Nine five. Would you give nine seven? Right quick. You're out now. At seven ten. You want to get ten million on her right? You would get out of the line. That's away now ten. At ten ten. You would get out of the line. Get ten. Now ten. You would get somebody get ten million dollars and knock him out. Ten million. I would get out of the line. Ten, all done. He would get out of the line. Ten, he would get out of the line. Ten and a half. At ten, now ten. He would get ten. Five. I'm at ten million five hundred. At ten million five hundred thousand. At ten, he would get ten two. Then at ten and now two, he would get out of the line. No tens right over here. Even money. Ten million. Ten two. Don't let him scare you off now. At ten, ten two. He would get two. He would get two. He would get out of the line. Get all done. He would get a chance of a lifetime. Ten million two hundred thousand. He would get ten two. Yes or no? At ten million two. Ten million two hundred thousand. I have it. Everybody wrote it. No, you're out. Tens right here. Ten two. Yes or no? I gotta go. Ten two. She's a great one. Ten two. Ten one. Folks, hold your applause here when this hammer falls, please. Let's get the mayor out of the ring first. Ten one, Adi, we're gonna get out of the Thank you. Are they done, Tom? Gotta go. Ten million one hundred. He's through. Well, thank him for what he did do. You made us a great underbidder. Bruce, right here, ten million dollars even. Bruce's thank you very side. Much thank indeed. you, Mr. Porter. Thank you so much, and remind me never to play poker with you. Thank you, folks. That was a wonderful tribute to this beautiful mayor, and we wish the buyer every success in her future. Welcome to Equisport Radio, your VIP pass to the world of horse racing. Les Baldwin take you inside the gate, behind the scenes, to the heart of horse racing. Equisport Radio, get tied on. And welcome to the show. I'm Les Salzman on the Equisport Radio Network, and we've got two great guests who have really had an impact on the sport. First, Terrence Collier is going to visit with us, and he's been a part of the Basic Tipton auction team since 1975, and he's participated in some of the, in the sale of some of the most famous and successful horses of our generation. And then right after we visit with Terrence, we're gonna meet with one of the most courageous women in the sport, Diane Crump. Diane was one of the first, well, she was the first woman jockey to ride in a paramutual race here in the United States, and a year later ran in the Kentucky Derby. We're going to talk with both of them and discuss what it was like to get started in the business and how things have changed over the years. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come right back. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds retired at Old Friends. And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. 
And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever, or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize is surging, Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around, so come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure a fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at The Stable, this fall, we're offering just that. We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. Great song. Terrence, did you ever hear that one before? Never heard it before, except one day it showed up on my phone as a ringtone. I couldn't imagine where they'd find it. <laughs> you know, I, I came across as I was researching the show, and I found out that you, you were part of that group, Vanity Fair. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? We, we'd started a, a little group at school. Um, I guess it was back in the mid-60s, and we'd had some success, but not recording success. We we were sort of coming along at a time when the Rolling Stones were already established, but groups like the Animals and the Yardbirds, it was a sort of rock and roll era at that time, and we'd achieved a little bit of notoriety. We were able to get to the level of a supporting group, uh, and uh, Vanity Fair morphed out of that group, and... Uh, they made a demo of that record, and by the time the demo got to the West Coast, I was already at sea. I joined the Merchant Navy and was in Australia, and I got a call from the lead guitarist, and he said, you'll never believe it, that demo that we couldn't get released in England, they've released it in California, and they actually feel that it's going to make, have some success. Well, it actually did. It sort of got into the top ten and, uh, and did some stuff. It was a lot of fun in those days. That's one of those songs that you hear it on the radio or wherever, 
and it sticks in your mind, and it takes you about 24 hours to get it out of your head. (laughs) Well, it's only taken 46 years to get out of my mind, but... (laughs) But uh, and that was an interesting part of your life, though, right? You were in the Navy, uh, and your family's a Navy family, right? My dad was served in the Second World War in the uh, Royal Naval Reserve, and uh, I joined the Merchant Navy more out of frustration than anything else. I couldn't see far enough to be a deck officer, so I joined a couple of shipping lines. I was with P and O and Cunard, and uh, my first trip to the States was back in. 68 or 69 on the Queen Mary. Um, and, yeah, I, I have always adored the sea, and that's one of the great joys about coming down to Florida in the winter is the opportunity to get on the ocean on my boat and do some fishing. And uh, I guess that's one of, as you mentioned, one of the benefits of the two-year-old sale for you. You get to kind of unwind a little bit and uh, do, do some work yeah. at the same time. It's a great spot. I mean, I'm so delighted that we're back at Gulfstream. Uh, We were at Calder, as you know, for many years. But when I started with Fasig Tipton, our home was Hialeah. And we were down there for a long, long time because I think there were two or perhaps even three sales in fairly close proximity. And the Fasig Tipton team used to move down as a group uh, and live in Miami for the better part of two and a half months during that uh, winter time. So... We used to see a lot of Miami, and uh, I've always enjoyed Florida, and uh, I'm so glad that we're back at Gulfstream, which is a great setting for the sale, and it's nice to be able to get up and look out and see the ocean. No, it, and it's really kind of that dramatic setting that you associate with the Facebook Tipton two-year-old sale. Uh, I know the last couple of years that, you know, before coming back to Gulfstream, the sale kind of wandered a little bit, but it seems like it really found a home now. Well, you know, Fasig Tipton has a history of being something of a wandering tribe. Um, we live and operate out of Kentucky, as we did out of New York for many years. But the bulk of our sales are always a long way away from our home base, and that's that's the case right now. We're, we're in Kentucky, but we sell in Saratoga and Maryland and Florida. Um, so it's um, it's a very different uh, a very different concept than Keeneland, which is here in Lexington and sells only in Lexington. I've, I've enjoyed Fasig Tipton's uh, modus operandi, as they would call it, because uh, it has given me a chance to spread my wings through the thoroughbred industry in a lot of different places. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because when you came came to Fasig Tipton in 1975, you had worked for BBA prior to that in England. Is That's where you got your entree into the thoroughbred industry? Well, I would say that it was more a blind date with my now wife that got me into the horse industry. She was working for the BBA, and uh, her boss, a man by the name of Colonel Frank Beale, uh, knew that I was on shore for an extended leave, and I was always pestering his secretary, and he thought if I could uh, get that fella out of her hair, she might focus on her job a bit better. So... He sent me off to Newmarket, where I worked for a wonderful man, uh, Sir Michael Oswald, who was uh, at that time the manager of Lordship and Edgerton Studs. And I was a pupil worker at Lordship and Edgerton for a couple of seasons and traveling horses in the times that I wasn't there for the BBA. So it was a very mixed start to my my horse uh, career. But during that period of time, I acted as a chauffeur 
for Humphrey Finney, and more latterly for John Finney, when they would come over to the sales and uh, come over for their regular visits to the UK, uh, and they needed a driver or uh, somebody just to help them around, I was uh, seconded from the BBA to help them, and that's how I, I first met Humphrey first and then John. That was my next question was to see how, how you got involved with Face at Tipton. Uh, so you showed <laughs> them around, just, and, and, and then what happened? It was, uh, it, it was a strange deal. I got a call from John. He was in London staying at the Savoy Hotel, which uh, is a very famous old riverside hotel in London. And he said, come and have lunch. Well, you know, young kids don't get invited by the president of a company to go and have lunch in one of the best hotels in London. So I was absolutely full of fear and dread, uh, but managed to sort of pull myself together. And I thought, I wonder if he's going to offer me a job. Gosh, wouldn't that be fantastic? But I won't say anything. I won't say anything. So I had this whole speech planned out for if he should ever raise the subject. And I walked in the door, and he'd ordered me steak and kidney pudding for lunch. I'll never forget it. And we sat there in an open window looking out over the Thames, and he sort of slapped me on the shoulder. And he said, well, I want you to come and work for Phasing Tipton. I said, okay. And all of the speech and all of the planning absolutely flew out of the window. And it took us about a year at that time. I mean, you think it's difficult to get into the country these days. In those days, it, it, you had to go through a very extensive visa process. But after a year, I got in and showed up uh, actually at Phasing Tipton uh, in December of 76. So it took me a year between that interview and uh, actually arriving at 40 Elmont Road to actually get to the States and start working for them. I remember that address very well. Yes, you do. I was going to ask you, whatever happened to the Ostra family? Are they still around? And You know, I haven't spoken with them recently. Uh, I guess we ran into somebody about seven or eight years ago that knew them. And, uh, we, you know, we lost touch when I moved down here to Florida. Uh, uh, well, it was a pleasant time in our lives, and we enjoyed the friendly rivalry that we had with the Ostra brothers. And, uh, you know, they were always looking for advantages and uh, and, and taking uh, taking advantages in in the sales opportunities in the new New York market, and they did very well. It, you know, it it was a good time in the industry in general, and that that's one of the things that we're trying to do with this show is to kind of go back and look at how people reacted to to each other. And yet, you know, when you came to Face at Tipton, what was your initial role there? Uh, it was no more than a T-boy, really, and I, I don't say that out of false modesty. Um, I showed up one very cold day. You might remember that the winter of 76, 77, was a very, very famous winter. It was a year that the Hudson River froze over, and, and it was a, a bitter, bitter winter. And I'd flown in with a bunch of mares, and uh, we'd unloaded our cargoes. I was put into the JFK Hilton right alongside the airport, and told to show up at Phasic Tipton the following day by John Finney in, in a telex. So I got a cab the next morning, and I arrived at Phasic Tipton's offices at about 9.30 and walked in. And I had established a friendship with a, a man that I had a lifelong friendship with him by the name of Larry Enzer, who was the senior Great vice guy. president and general manager. And, and he was a very fearsome guy to a young fellow from England. Uh, and... I walked into his office and he said, hey, Terence, what are you doing here? And I said, well, Larry, I've actually come to start work here. 
He said, well, nobody said anything to me. And that was my first day at basic system. It warmed up from there, I take it. Well, it did. They're a wonderful group of people that have remained good friends. At that time, Rick Waldman uh, was Larry's assistant. And uh, John Finney was uh, the peripatetic thoroughbred auctioneer. He was in different parts of the world every day of the week. And so it was a long time before I sort of settled into a, a rhythm. Uh, but shortly after arriving, we, uh, we went to Florida and did the two-year-old sales at Hialeah. I came back, and shortly after that, my wife arrived, and then I went down to Maryland for the two-year-old sales. So she didn't see very much of me. I dumped her on Long Island, and, uh, and she had to make a way. We had one child at that time. But... Uh, Everybody was very welcoming and very friendly, and, and I adored my job from the day I got it, and it was a very varied job, but uh, I made some friends quickly, and, uh, and we were a small family in those days, Les. It was not, uh, it was not a big uh, departmentalized company. Everybody did a bit of something, so I went from the pedigree department to the accounting department to the research department, to the advertising department, did a lot of, spent a lot of time doing advertising and marketing for them, uh, and, and just learned the business. That was, uh, that was the basis of my education with Fasic Tipton. And then you got in the box, and I have, I have to ask you this question, and it's a little awkward, especially coming from a guy from New Jersey. You, you got in the box, and, and you've come from England. Were you concerned that people would have difficulty with the, the accent? I always thought that they would understand me because one of the things that I felt that I could bring, and, and Humphrey Finney, if you listen to some of the very old tapes of Humphrey and John, uh, were very slow and deliberate in, in their pronunciation. So even though and neither of them had strong uh, accents at that stage, and so even though they had an accent, they, they very clearly enunciated, and I felt that I could do that. So. I had been practicing and uh, got my start at a horses of racing aid sale at Belmont Park, which was the, the most difficult place to, to start because it was so disorganized. You never know which horse was coming in the ring. There were notes flying around in the wind, and uh, it, it was quite a challenge to get everything organized. But I, I only messed up a dozen times in 20 horses, so I got out feeling pretty good about it. And we finished the sale, went back to the office, and... Uh, Larry Enzo said, well, you didn't do too badly. And, and Larry struggled with announcing. He tried it a few times and was very uncomfortable with it. So he said, you really didn't do too badly with your announcing debut. He said, but somebody came up to me and said, that boy's all right, but don't take him south of the Mason-Dixon line. And the very next sale that I ended up announcing was in Louisiana. So I think it, uh, it proved a little more difficult for them down there than it did at Belmont Park. Well, having been to that sale at Belmont Park many times, it was always an amazing thing that you guys could even talk some days. It got so cold. It was incredible. It, it really was. We were in the tunnel there between the paddock and, and the exactly. racetrack, and the wind used to howl through there like a test wind tunnel. And, uh, you know, the, the March sale, and we had four a year then, Les. I don't know if you remember those. I, I, I do. We had a... Uh, a late March, early April, a June sale, and then we had an October and a November sale. And 
three of the four were real testers. I mean, you, you had to dress very warmly and sit up in that auction stand. And when I look back on it, it was, I mean, it's a long time ago. It's 40 years ago. But the, the sophistication that we have today compared to what we were doing in those days, uh, it, it just staggers me that we've moved so far in my career. I mean, it, uh, it's a long time, and I've been around a long time, but uh, we've certainly made some strides. That's another interesting point. You know, the the industry itself has changed. What in particular would you kind of pinpoint as the biggest change that the auction company looks at? Well, uh, I, I, you've got to take it in, in various stages, but, but just in terms of the industry as a whole, I would say that the biggest change that I continue to notice is that as I started, it was almost the beginning of the end of the national breeder. Uh, when you look at the influence in Phasic Tipton's business, that Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, I mean, we Pennsylvania, that those outlying states had on our sales, particularly on Saratoga. I mean, Virginia was always the lead state as far as the top yearlings were concerned at Saratoga. And at that time, most of the Kentucky yearlings were obviously selling in Kentucky. So, and, and you would have perhaps 20 to 30 farms selling what was effectively their annual crop. And although it was even in those days a selected sale, Fasic Tipton had the final say as to what horses went there, there was a great deal of leeway given the consigner because it was a crop and some were good and, and some were less than good, but they used to come up there and sell all of their yearlings. It was very rare for a dairy meeting farm, for a Bert Linder, for these people to, to take horses home because the good ones they would protect with modest reserves and the ones that they weren't so protective of were just left out on the open market and would sell for whatever they sold for. That still happens. You know, these days people still say, well, I'm going to sell a group of two-year-olds, and if I make enough on one, I'll, I don't mind not making quite so much on the other. So that's always the same. But in those days, it was a cash crop. And, and at the end of that Saratoga season, or at the end in, in Kentucky, in the end of July and September, that was the revenue that the farm was going to have for its operating, for acquiring broodmares and stallion seasons for the following year. That, you don't see that anymore. I mean, I would be hard-pressed uh, to come up with a half a dozen names of people that actually sell at Saratoga the, the yearlings that they raise at their home farms. No, that, that is a big change. One of, one of the things I noticed about you over the years is before a sale, you're very active in the barn area usually. You know, you're talking, talking to consigners, you're looking at horses uh, so that you're better equipped when you get into the box. But it also, as an observer, it seems like that's a part of your job that you really like. Am I missing something or? Not a bit, you hit it absolutely on the nail. I mean, at, at, if I, the day that I lose interest in looking at a thoroughbred, is the day that I really should move on because that has been an enduring passion uh, and has kept me interested in my, my game. I mean, if you really think about it, when you get in the stand 
for three or four days and you know you've got 200 plus yearlings a year to get through per day, you've got to have something more than an interest in the page that's in front of you. And the, the benefit of experience, and, and I've got a couple of younger colleagues that I, I try to impart this on, uh, and you know, somebody even like Rich Migliori, who's beginning to look at announcing for us a little bit, I tell him, take your head out of the catalog, look around the audience, look at the horse that's in the ring, and get an opinion of what's going on in the auction process, because you're not there as a reader of pedigrees, you're there as part of the auction team to help the auctioneer, to help the bid spotters. And it's in your interest to know what you're selling. And probably the best lesson that I ever got was from one of the great auctioneers. You heard Danny Green selling Harvard de Grace, who is unparalleled in his technique. Another guy that had that wonderful technique was Ralph Rettler. And he was also a very canny horse person. He bred horses at home in Maryland. And... I learned a lot from him in the auction stand because he was equally adept on either side of the stand. He was a great auctioneer and a good announcer. And he used to stand behind me and give me tips. And, and it was at an early stage of my career. I didn't have a level of confidence that really helped me. But I remember one time I was reading this fantastic pedigree and there was a yearling in the ring at Saratoga. And uh, I wasn't taking any notice of the yearling that was in the ring. It could have been a bay when it said on page chestnut. I just hadn't seen it. And Ralph just, I thought he was being helpful. He said, uh, and it's a great looking yearling too. And I said, and what a fine looking coat this son of so-and-so is. <laughs> and everybody tittered in the auction, in the, in the ring. And I heard this laugh come up and I looked up and it was the biggest Roman nosed yearling you'd ever seen in your life. One of the ugliest things that only a mother could love. And it taught me that, hey, get a picture before you start. Don't start describing it as something that it isn't because you blow your whole cred just in one sentence. And so that's one of the reasons I enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy looking at the horse to judge, in my opinion, what its potential is. And I always go back after we've sold a big grad and look at the notes in the catalog and see where I was wrong, because inevitably it's where you were wrong, not where you were right. Uh, but you've got to look at it and you've got to get some interest in, in the product. And uh, it is a beautiful product. It is. You know, you mentioned Ralph and w one of the things, again, that I've noticed over the years, there's a one thing that you Ralph and Laddie Dance all had. When you guys got to the, the sales grounds and you got in the box, there was a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> well, it's nice of you to say that. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoy my job. I, I know we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, John Finney gave me a wonderful opportunity to start a career at Fazig Tipton that I have enjoyed for 40 plus years. And it never gets old because Every year, there's something new happening. And I think that that's one of the great joys in working for a thoroughbred auction company. You get to see the cream of the crop. You get to see a different crop every year. And you see a lot of old friends and make a lot of new ones. It's been a, it's been a magic career. Well, you've been a joy to listen to for 30-some-odd years and uh, hope to listen to you for many, many more years and participate in the bidding that you induce from me. Uh, now, you're off for a little while. Uh, and then you're back to work at Timonium, and then absolutely. And then we've got, got to, uh, we've got 
almost 600 ahead in Timonium uh, just over Preakness weekend. And at the moment, we're looking at yearlings and putting catalogs together for the summer and fall sales. And before you know it, we'll have July on as our first major yearling sale of the year, a racing age sale in July, and then straight into Saratoga. And it seems that as soon as that New York bread sale is over in Saratoga, that you're rushing through the rest of the year. You've got sales every other weekend somewhere. So the first part of the year is, is relatively relaxing, and it gives you a chance to sort of recharge the batteries and renew a lot of friendships and acquaintances. And, and just set yourself up for the rest of the year. Now, you have a sale coming up in September, which is a new sale uh, called the Turf Showcase. Before we go, we can do. you tell me a little bit about that? Um, it came out of a, a think tank session, and, uh, you know, one of the ideas, a lot of ideas come up, and if you sit around a table with them, you explore what I would call are the unintended consequences. And, and you've got to be aware of those before you launch a project. Because once you've launched it, if you fail, it never, you know, as Buzz Chase used to say, you never get a second chance to make a first opinion. So I always listen in those groups and with about eight people, very smart people around the table from various aspects of phasing Tipton's operations, we couldn't come up with a negative with the concept. Everything was positive about it. So we took it and explored it with a few key consigners. And Les, the, the thing that we're all noticing is that virtually every major stallion operation in Lexington has a key stallion that is a grass sire or a grass specialist. And this is something that is going to continue to expand over the next decade or so. 40% of the stakes races, the graded stakes races that run in North America run on grass. So it, there was nothing out there that was showcasing those yearlings. And we didn't want to rob from any other sale. We wanted a new concept. And that day and this sales opportunity just looked the right thing to do. And so we launched it, and we've had a lot of very positive feedback, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. The key to it will be the quality, the physical qualities of the horse. And we've got a great inspection team, and, and they're out there looking at them right now to make sure that we get this thing off on the right foot, and hopefully it'll find a place for itself in, in the calendar on a long-term basis. I think with the internationalizing of the industry as well, I don't know if that's really a word, by the way, internationalizing. But <laughs> it's a long word, even if it's not one. And for me, if it's more than two syllables, it's it's a major <laughs> event. So, but uh, you know, if uh, I think with all the international eyes that look at Kentucky, I think it's a great idea, and I wish you guys all the luck in the world with it. Uh, Terrence, you. I'm going to let you go. As always, a pleasure. I hope we can have you on the show frequently, uh, and I look forward to uh, seeing you either in Kentucky or Saratoga. Les, thank you for your good wishes and good luck with your program, and I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye now. We'll just take a quick commercial break, and right after, we'll have Diane Crump, the first lady of racing. They are superstar athletes, but they don't ask for more money or go on strike. They bring their best every time they play. They are great thoroughbreds, retired, and old friends. 
And here's commentator turning for home in the Whitney with a three-length lead. And here's commentator to win the Whitney again. And boy, he did it with some front-running style today. All commentator wants is a peppermint and to hang out with a couple of his pals, like Eclipse Award winners Hidden Lake and Sunshine Forever, or even a Breeders' Cup champ. Prize is surging, Sierra Roberto toward the inside, a driving finish in the turf, and here's the wire, and it is prized! Many of the past superstars of our sport are still running around, so come visit them at Old Friends in Georgetown, Kentucky, or at our Bobby Frankel division, Old Friends in Saratoga. I know they'll be glad to see you. Go to oldfriendsequine.org or call us at 502-863-1775. When you head to a horse sale, either looking to buy or sell, you really don't know what's going to happen. In the blink of an eye, horses can leave the ring undersold or overpriced. But what if there was a better way to ensure fair market price for both the buyer and seller? Here at the stable, this fall, we're offering just that. We offer the ability to see your yearlings hard at work while giving you a better chance to make informed decisions that are calculated, not spur of the moment. We'll also provide in-depth commentary from our trainers, blacksmiths, and veterinarians on how each horse is progressing. And they're off. Rancho Leo breaks for the lead on the inside. Also silent screen. Up on the outside, moving quickly is Turlago. Robin's Bug is up between horses. They move through the stretch. This is Rancho Leos with the lead, Turlago. Along the rail, it's George Lewis. Then between those two is Robin's Bug, followed by Kornoff the Cop and Silent Screen, who is now six. They move into the first turn. Rancho Leos moving to the lead by a full length. Now George Lewis drawing closer in second. Silent Screen gets through the third on the rail. And Robin's Bug is fourth, Terlago is now fifth. Cornoff the Cobb is sixth on the outside, Dust Commander seventh. Further back, that's Native Royalty, then High Echelon, Nascra, Dr. Behrman, Fathom, Holy Land, Action Getter, Admiral Shield, My Dad George, and the trailer is High Echelon. They're on the backstretch. The leader is still Ranchaleos. He's holding it by one leg. On the outside and moving to challenges, George Lewis in second. Silent Screen is third, Robin's Bug fourth, Dust Commander on the rail is fifth. On the outside, Kornoff the Cobb is holding sixth, Terlago on the rail is seventh. Native Royalty is moving up and Fathom has moved along the rail. They're very well bunched as they move into that turn. Rancho Leos gives up the lead now. On the outside, it's Silent Screen and George Lewis going together. Kornoff the Cobb is moving suddenly. Native Royalty on the outside. Then it's Robin's Bug and they're coming for the head of the stretch. Silent Screen, Kornoff the top, George Lewis on the rail. Then Native Royalty, Nastra is in a drive and moving up. Through the stretch, Silent Screen has taken over the lead now. That is Kornoff the top, second. Along the inside, Dust Commander. They come for the finish. Dust Commander is on the rail. He has the lead. My dad, George, a late move. Silent Screen, here on the outside is High Echelon. They're coming onto the wire. Look at Dust Commander open up as he hits the finish. Dust Commander, a big winner. Then my dad, George, second highest on third, and Nasser is fourth. Silent Screen is fifth. Well, Diane, you probably remember that race. I do. And welcome to the show. I remember pretty uh, well. Uh, for those of you that don't know, back on February 7th in 1969, 
Diane became the first woman to ride in a paramutual race here in the United States. Uh, you rode for uh, Bill Calumet, right? Uh, Bridal and Bit at Hylia Park. I think that was the right. first. Uh, the, trainer, the, the trainer was Tom Calumet. Yep. Oh, t- what did I say, Bill? I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll get it right <laughs> no sooner or later. Uh, but thanks. Thanks a lot. Now, Hialeah always had huge crowds. but And I remember this day very well uh, because I was working for a newspaper at the time. The crowd wasn't all that friendly. Uh, not, that fact, day. not that day. Not that day. Matter of fact, I think you, you had police escorting you to the track and from the jocks room. Uh, what was that like? I mean, that must have been incredibly difficult for your first race. For some, for some reason, it didn't seem that difficult. I mean, yes, everyone was around me, but I felt I was so happy to get to ride that the rest of it, I shut the rest of it out. I mean, I just, it was so, it was such an important moment for, for me in my life that the rest of it was totally immaterial to me. That's interesting because if you interview athletes from various sports, they say the same thing. They can block it out and they can just focus on the event. And uh, obviously you were able to do that. The days prior from, let's say, the time that they entered and when the overnight came out to the time that you got to the jocks room, that had to be a little unnerving because a number of other woman riders had been named on horses, but they they had been taken off. Well, they got taken, I mean, they got boycotted. So the exactly. two other riders got boycotted. So uh, but were I, you afraid that that was going to happen? But I felt comfortable. No, I, because Hialeah, the stewards had already come out strongly that that would not happen at Hialeah. It had happened at Churchill Downs. It had happened at Tropical Park. But the stewards were so adamant that it was not going to happen there that I will say I did feel confident that it wasn't going to happen. And the couple of days before, I'm sure there was a lot of media, a lot of people asking you questions. You were just a 21-year-old kid. I was, I was 20. But the, here's the key. <laughs> you know, it I was, should never talk about a woman's age. I should know that by now. <laughs> okay, well, it doesn't really matter at this point. But <laughs> here's the funny thing, is I was galloping a horse at Gulfstream. That's where we were stabled. Um, you know, on the day before the race, and somebody said, Diane, do you know that you're named on a horse tomorrow? And I said, no, I have no idea. So I said, I haven't seen it overnight. We didn't enter any horses for that day. So anyway, I didn't know. I'm galloping a horse, and somebody just asked me that. Had I seen it overnight? And I said, no. So when I got back to the barn, you know, I asked one of the guys, I said, hey, will you run up to the office and get it overnight. So they did, and they came back, and sure enough, I was named on a horse that I never knew. I didn't I didn't know the people. I never knew the horse, but somebody named me on him. Did, did you know the trainer beforehand? No, I've never met him, never spoke to him in my life. He said in the paddock that his wife told him to name me on that horse. So I never well, knew. Was... It was totally out of the blue. So he was a smart guy because he listened to his wife. He knew... Th- Knew yeah. the damage at home could have been severe if he didn't, and he named you off. Right. And, yes, exactly. And so you'd never so been the, on the horse in the morning. Never. And here you are at Hialeah well, Park. Good. 
uh, had you been in the jocks room before? No, this is the craziest thing because I didn't even have tack. I mean, you know, we were waiting. We were uh, we were the people that I gal for wanted to ride me, and Mary Time wanted to ride me, but they were, you know, we were still a few weeks away from having horses to enter. So, you know, I was just taking my time getting what I needed. I had nothing because I didn't know. I had no idea. So I had to go that afternoon to the the, the, the jockey store right outside of Hialeah that sold pack and boots and everything, you know, for riders. Yeah. So I actually had to go there on that afternoon and get what I needed, except I didn't get a saddle. And Danny Gargan, who, who rode a few races for the barn that I, that I worked for, said, hey, Diane, don't get a saddle yet. I'll loan you mine. So Danny Gargan offered me his saddle, and he loaned, he loaned me his saddle, and I got the pants and the boots, and I already had a helmet, of course. So I had what I needed, and I just I got a whip that was regulated, and that was it. So I'd never been to a jock room. I'd never been anything. So just some of the friends I had that, that had ridden races said, hey, you have to call the jock room by 9 o'clock to tell them that, you'll be there to ask them what time and where to go. So the next, so I did get my tack that afternoon, get what I needed, called the jocks room that morning, and they told me, they said, well, we haven't exactly figured out where we're going to put you, but we're thinking the HBBA office, which is fairly close to the men's jocks room and also fairly close to the paddock. So they said, be there at, I think it was 2 o'clock because it was the seventh race. And that's where I went. So whatever time, I don't remember. But I, whatever time I had to be there, I, that's where I went to the HBBA office. And finally they got some ballot to help me out. And Danny loaned me his saddle. And I stayed there for the duration until the race because they didn't know what else to do with me. You know, that's interesting because for so many years, and I, I guess I've I've written about 16 or 17 women riders, but back in the early 80s, there, in many racetracks, there was no girls' jock, uh, jocks room, and they were literally in little phone booths. Uh, it must must have been very difficult. Well, you know what? I guess if we didn't know any different, so it wasn't it wasn't that bad because you don't if you don't know anything, then you you have nothing to compare it to. So I will say, for the first 10 years, we used um, ladies' restrooms that they would cordon off, or the first aid room in a lot of cases, and Hialeah used the HBBA office because it was actually fairly close. <laughs> so it was odd, but for the first, I'm going to say 10 to 12 years, well, you're saying in the 80s, by the early 80s, a lot of places were starting to add, you know, something for the women. But until then, you basically use the first aid room or a ladies room somewhere. Yeah, no, and uh, God forbid you needed to use the box because you didn't have a box to sweat in. You had nothing. There was no, it wasn't like you could, you know, like they have, they have cots, they have the sweat box, they have a snack bar, they have, you know, the men's jocks room has all that. We had one plain room. That was it with a chair, usually, or maybe we sat on the floor. (laughs) It was, now, it was definitely, it was different, but you know what? We wanted to ride so bad that it didn't matter. Nothing mattered. That's what I was going to say. It probably didn't matter at all because you, you got your tack and you were able to get on one. 
And uh, that's exactly right. That's now, what mattered. So now, after you rode bridle and bit, you started getting some mounts, right? Well, I did. I got a few. The people that I galloped for actually wanted me to ride. They just didn't. It just took them a little while before they had young horses that were ready to run. They would go to Florida from Kentucky, and then they had horses. They had some of their young horses ready to run at the end of Hialeah and through Gulf Street. And so once they were ready to run, they were ready to put me on the horses. That was not a problem. And then a few other people that, you know, like Mary Kime was a woman trainer, said that she'd had enough trouble you know, 25 or 30 years prior to me getting, trying to ride as a woman, she had the same issue with a trainer's license. She was wanting to, you know, she wanted to ride me. There was a few people. Mostly the bond that I galloped for is the, are the bond that wanted me to ride for them. And so then you won your first race a couple of weeks after that, that first start. Right. Do you, do you um, remember that, that, that race? race? Yes, that same, well, that same horse, they shipped to Tampa. So they shipped him, it was then Florida Downs then, so they shipped him to Tampa, and of course, with lesser competition, he actually, because that was the claiming race that I rode him in, he went to a Tampa and won an allowance race. So that was two weeks later on that same horse. And how'd that feel? That felt awesome. That felt like I knew that it would feel. I knew it would feel like that, and it did, and I loved it. And from there... You know, we had horses to run, and I got to—I actually got to ride some decent horses. They were all, most all of them were first-time starters. Most of them were two-year-olds. I always broke yearlings, and I always got the two-year-olds ready to run. So I knew how to do that part. Now I know you were born in in Connecticut, and then your family moved to the Ocala area when you were a kid, right? No, they, we moved to no to Oldsmar. Oh, okay. So we, and, so actually we moved, so basically our, we bought a house that my parents bought a home that was probably 10 minutes from Florida Downs, which is now Tampa Bay Downs. So okay. that's where I grew up, is Tampa Bay Downs. But from what I've read, you didn't start writing or take lessons until you were about 13 years old. Well, as a little kid, when I was seven, I think for my seventh birthday, my parents got me a package of riding lessons, like eight lessons. But there was a, like a little, like a livery stable where you could go ride for an hour. So on Saturdays, my mom would take me there on Saturday afternoon. So that, that was no lessons. It would just got to go ride, which I love. And I never, I never took a lesson other than when I was seven. One, I think I took a package of lessons. But that was it. I mean, basically, I just got on a road. I learned by doing and by trial and error. And so... You worked at Breaking Babies. Yep, I broke yearlings. Uh, who'd you work for? Some of the people that you worked for. I worked I worked for a farm called Lake Magdalene Farm. Which was okay. Nelson Zambito Nelson Zambito was the owner. And they had on one side of the road was a dairy farm and on the other side of the farm were the racehorses. So they had brood mares, they you know, raised babies, and then when the babies were old enough they Broke them, put them in training, and sent them to the track. So I started there when I was 13, but I was just, at that time, I was handling the weanlings. That's what they wanted. They just wanted some kid that loved horses to come in and get the weanlings friendly and where you could lead them and just stuff like that. And that's how I started. And so then you got more and more horse crazy as it went along. Is that right? 
Definitely. And I was already horse crazy, but it just kept imp- it just kept um, growing. And so now you're galloping babies, and you know th- things are going pretty good. What made you decide to go to Hialeah? Well, when I uh, so when I was 13, those weanlings, the, where I, the farm that I started, they were weanlings. Well, the next year when they were yearlings, they said, "You think you could think you could help break them?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm sure." I had no idea what that meant. I mean, I didn't know. And they had a man that worked on the gate that was the ground person, and he basically taught me. And so, from little by little, I learned to gallop. Well, I, I broke them, got them going. They had a little half mile track in the back of their farm, so I learned little by little to gallop. The trainers, their trainer, which had come in from Ohio, his name was Art Chestnut. Anyway, Great. he liked me, knew that I was, you know, that I loved horses, and he lived in Oldsmark too, so we sort of became friends. And he'd smuggle me into the track, because then you couldn't get into the track if you weren't 16. That's right. So he'd smuggle me in, I'd walk some hots, and maybe I could cool them out on their back, letting me ride them around the shed row. Then I could get on a lead pony and go out. And little by little, I begged to get on something at the track. So when the first yearlings that I broke, the next year when they were two, I begged and begged for them to let me get on them once they got to the track. And so little by little, once they got them going, they let me get on a few a few other people saw me out there, and they were like, well, we've got something, you know, if you want to get try it. So little by little, that's how I learned to gallop, just by people giving me a shot to get on a few horses. And then you get uh, the I shot. Think, I think they felt sorry for me, I guess, because I tried so hard. <laughs> well, or you were that persistent, and you really you know, were into it, and they felt that, hey, this kid deserves a shot. Uh, absolutely. I truly believe that, because they, I mean, everybody was there was for me and they all gave me a shot no matter now what it was they were always there wanting to help me yeah you know, that's one of the things i think that is such an important message to young riders especially young woman riders these days is you know it's not going to be easy at the beginning it's going to be tough but you got to be persistent and you got to be there every morning uh and you know just go go with it until you get your opportunity uh, too many Absolutely. people just start for three weeks and they wind up at another racetrack. And then they wind up at yeah, another was, racetrack. Just think it was years of doing that. You know what I mean? Years of being out there, breaking the yearlings, getting on two-year-olds. That, you know, you get bucked off, you get run off with, you get on again, you get on again. And people, little by little, they see you getting better. And they say, oh, you know, damn, look at how hard that they try. You know what I mean? So you try, yeah. you never give up, and you keep learning, and you get better. I think that's the big message, isn't it? Uh, you keep learning. You cannot give up. You have to. You, you can't give up. You know, and, and if you, you love you it, be- good. You get better by doing it. By continue to, you just do it, and you never give up. And so, when you you went postward in the 1970 Kentucky Derby, you know, having. Literally, and you, and you just described it, you know, just working and working and working and working. How did that post-parade feel? It felt amazing. The, you know, because, I mean, I love Churchill Downs. Even before I ever was able to ride, I galloped horses there, and I learned to love it. And so, I mean, it was just, it had such an awesome feeling, just being at that track and knowing everything that came before you and the great horses that were there. So 
I loved it. And I had ridden there then all year. I galloped horses before. And then I'd ridden in the spring and the fall meets and had good meets, you know, as an apprentice rider. And then the following year, getting to ride Fathom in the Derby. I mean, just to come through that tunnel, and when you walk on the track and you hear them playing My, my Old Kentucky Home, it's a feeling that you will never forget. At least I'll never forget for as long as I live. And it's great that you have that to carry with you. You know, our business is so difficult where, you know, it is. A, a, a good trainer loses four out of five times. A very good trainer loses four out of five times. Most of us lose nine out of ten times. So to be able right. to carry those good memories with you is so important. Now, you. I mean, I, I, can re I remember every horse I rode. I, I mean, I can remember how hard they tried. And it didn't matter if it was a $2,500 claiming race or the Derby. I just remember how hard they tried and what it felt like. It was the greatest feeling in the whole world. I loved it. I, I'll love it till the day I die. It's, it's the greatest feeling. I just love the way a racehorse feels. The one they, when they try, they give you their heart. It's the most awesome feeling you can imagine. Now, you stayed at the racetrack till the late 90s. Am I correct? And you did some... I, rode, I rode my last race in 1999. And you did some training as well. I did. I trained horses for several years. I actually, for almost three years, I ran, ran the training barn at Calumet Farm for a few years on the farm. Well, that must have been a great experience, huh? It was. What a cool farm. And they had a, they had a racetrack that would pretty much do any of the racetracks around the country proud. It was awesome. And a beautiful farm. I loved it. And now, what are you doing now? I, I know you're in the business. T tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So what, I, what I'm doing now is once I, once I quit riding races, I was getting a bit beat up. I, mean, I had a lot of knee injuries and whatever. So it, it was time to do something else. My mom was sick and needed me to come home. So I, the Internet was just starting to get pretty popular. So I thought, okay, maybe I can put that to my benefit with name recognition, and so I set up a business that is exactly like a real estate company, only for horses. And in Northern Virginia, sport horse country is huge. Northern Virginia right. to sport horses is, a, is sort of like Lexington to racehorses. And so it worked out perfect. So I advertised the horses, pictures, videos, descriptions, just exactly like if, if it was a house. And then people fly in from everywhere to come look at them, try them, and buy them. And what's the website, Diane? It's diannecrump.com. That must have taken you a long time to figure that one out. Yeah, it did. It took about five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so if but my, any my of our mother, listeners my want to... My mother is the one that designed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but if any of our listeners want to, they just go to diannecrump.com. And uh, I'm down in Wellington, so, you know... A lot of my neighbors are in their vans as we speak, heading back up to Virginia. Yes, and, yes uh, they are. And now you, you have family, right? You have kids. I, I have one daughter that lives about 30 minutes from me, and she has, she's married with three kids. So I have three now, grandkids. Now, is she in the business? Four, six, and eight. Is, is she in the business? <laughs> nope. She teaches school. 
Well, good for her. Anybody that teaches gets votes for us all the time. Uh, now you have she, loves, she, is, she loves she loves kids as much as I love horses. What can I say? And now she has three kids. You want to sh- give yes. them a shout out? They're awesome. They're and, Blake and Lena. They're amazing. Okay, so when we send you the copy of the archive, you can s- send it to them and say, "Look what Grandma did." Uh, all right, Diana, that would be cool. Uh, I'll send it to your email. It'll be up on our website equisportmedia.com probably by midday tomorrow uh, and thank okay. you for joining us it's been a pleasure and uh, we hope to talk with you again in the real near future all right that would be awesome thanks for having me i appreciate it my pleasure and thanks for joining us on the equisport radio network we'll see you in two weeks when we'll be sitting on the front porch recalling some of racing's best memories here they come, spinning out of the turn. Dancers, Bearcat, puts ahead in front. TK Skipper fights back down along the rail, and they slug it out. TK Skipper has the lead along the rail. Dancers, Bearcat, second, Freight Saver to the outside in third. Kurtz first, down along the rail, fourth, down the stretch, inside the furlong marker. TK Skipper about to win another. Freight Saver on the outside, and along the rail, rare storm. But it's TK Skipper again. Another fine performance. TK Skipper by two and a half. Freight Saver second, Rare Storm third.